0: This morning I'm curious if you knew that your entire future and destiny actually hangs in the balance based on the existence and life of one man. And and this one man, Jesus, who determines your eternal destiny, is a man who actually his works say more about what your future will look like and your present will look like, Than any other individual in your life, including you. In other words, the way that you view God, the way that you view others, the way that you view yourself will be shaped by the way that you view this man, Jesus Christ. So I'm wondering how you view him this morning. Did you know that that there have historically been ways that people have looked at Jesus that have not measured up with God's self revelation of Himself in the Bible? In other words, we have created pictures of Jesus historically, even recently, that aren't actually jiving with the picture of Jesus that we find in God's very own Word where He tells us who His Son is. I think that Francis Schaeffer's words about 50 years ago probably would ring true still today. Now, he said that in his time, he began to become terrified when he would hear the word, Jesus. And the reason that he got so terrified was that when he would hear it so often, it was so far from the biblical account of what he read about Jesus, that it actually seemed to be at enmity with the Jesus of the Bible. And so when we're thinking about Christ alone, we need to understand that we are constantly in need of understanding who Christ is according to the voice of God Himself. And that's exactly what we want to be thinking about this morning. Now, we have had a number of folks who have looked at Jesus historically in some interesting ways. So, for instance, uh, a lot of people have looked at Jesus and said that he was qualitatively different than other people, right? In other words, he was morally superior uh, in his uh, morals and he was superior in his knowledge, maybe in his wisdom. So he was kind of just a better human than other humans. He was qualitatively better, maybe in the category of like a Gandhi or a Mother Teresa, Well, even more recently, uh, I don't know if you read this uh, this last week, there was an article that came out by a Methodist, a United Methodist uh, minister, uh, and she came out saying, uh, Dr. Eleveto, that she actually believed that Jesus uh, was not actually a great guy or uh, better than us qualitatively. She said he was actually a bigot that was reforming. And that he was actually coming out of his bigotry. So, so catch this. Here's what she's doing. She is reframing Jesus even further down the scale than what historically folks have seen Jesus as, even when they're not believers. She's saying not only is he just a really good guy, but not you know, supernatural, he's actually kind of like the rest of us, and that's really what we should use him for. We're recovering bigots just like him, and if he can do it, anybody can do it. Well, the reformers had their own problems that they were dealing with. And the problems that they were looking at was that they were being challenged about the nature of who Christ was, and they believed that Jesus wasn't merely quantitatively different as the man par excellence. They actually believed that Christ was qualitatively different as the God-man who was alone able to reconcile sinners like you and me to a holy God. Now, at the time of the Reformation, the Ro- Roman Catholic church had been teaching some things that some Catholics began to have problems with, like Martin Luther. So the church was teaching uh, things like y- you can pray to God through saints. Uh, They taught uh, transubstantiation or this view of communion that said that basically when you're taking communion, the priest blesses it and when he places it in your mouth, it becomes the literal blood and body of Jesus Christ so that you are having a continual sacrifice over and over again being made at the church through this priest. Not only that, we find that they were facing others uh, who were also teaching that they needed to add works to faith to receive salvation. And as they saw these things, heard these things, the Reformers said that all of this flew in the face of our fourth solo this morning, Solus Christus, or Christ alone, which we're going to be considering from the Gospel of John. You can go ahead and be turning there if you're going to be uh, hanging with us in the Scripture this morning. I I hope you are. Now, if you don't know about John, John... His Gospel was likely written, I believe, after the fall of the temple in 70 A.D. And so he was writing this, I believe, to help people who were broken up about the loss of the temple and trying to figure out how are we supposed to draw near to God now? See, the temple was a place where it was considered to be the house of God. That's where people came before the throne of God and the Holy of Holies. And if this place is gone, then how can we come near to God? The temple was where the priests, as mediators, would offer sacrifices daily to bring people near to God. And after cleansing the temple in John 2, you'll remember what Jesus says at the opening of John's Gospel. He says, hear this, you can destroy this temple as he's in the temple courts. You can destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, if you have ever been to the temple... And you've seen uh, what stands there now. It's no longer the temple that he would have been looking at because it was torn down in 70 AD. But it is a magnificent structure. It is not the kind of thing that's like sort of a pop-up tent or camper. Uh, this is the kind of thing that the Jews, even in context, are looking at Jesus like he's crazy. And he's like, three days? It took us 46 years with an army of people. And you think on your own you can raise this up in three days? This guy's got to be out of his mind. And then Jesus explains he explains in John chapter 2, right after they said that, saying this, and this is John sort of explaining what Jesus meant. He says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now fast forward to John fourteen six, where we're going to be today. And here is Jesus further explaining what he means. He says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way to the Father. That's the only way to draw near to God. You're all alienated and sinners, and you cannot draw near to God. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to draw near to a holy God as sinners, but I'm here to tell you I'm about to make a way where there is no way, and I am the only way. And that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning. Our big idea is this that we're going to be thinking about. If you'd like to take notes, write this down. It is that Christ is the only mediator who can make you right with God. Christ is the only mediator who can make you right with God. And I know that sounds simple and short, but it is profound, and we could spend the rest of our lives thinking about it. In fact, that's what we do Sunday after Sunday and morning after morning as we study the Word of God. We're going to be unpacking that this morning. But let's pray to God as we begin asking for His help. Will you pray with me? God, this morning as we come before You, we come before You only through Christ, our great mediator. And God, as we come as a people this morning, I know that each of us need to be, absolutely changed by your word each of us need to be transformed and we ask that you would do that this morning father help us to make much of christ we pray that the exclusivity and the sufficiency of christ would be gloried in and marveled at this morning it's in your name that we do pray amen well here's the first thing that we uh, need to cover if we want to understand this text i believe is a short history of mediation mediators in the bible Now, if you haven't thought about mediators before, mediators are individuals who are go-betweens between two parties. So they, they help two individuals come together through this mediator. So in the Bible, you have all kinds of mediators, and what mediators do is they speak to people on behalf of God, and to God on behalf of people. That's what mediators do. And you see these all throughout the Bible, So prophets, priests, and kings did this in the Old Testament. They mediated relationship between humanity and God. Now let me just say this. As Americans, we're going to have a lot of trouble with this, right? We are individualistic. We, we love, uh, in Phoenix especially, to go home, drive into our driveway, go into our carport, into our garage, and what do we do? Do we jump out and say hey to the neighbors? No, we put the garage door down, and we wait till it's all the way down till we get out and go into our houses, right? Like, some of you have lived next to the same people for a decade, and you don't know your neighbors. And one of the reasons is, uh, not just because your neighbors are strange, But it is because we are individualistic. And uh, we like to think about our identities on individual terms. Not very similar to some other shame cultures where uh, folks actually find their identity not in their own sort of ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but by the way they are viewed in a community. And if you know folks, uh, friends, if you have friends from, say, Asian cultures and that kind of thing, uh, you'll notice that they have different drives and things that shape them. That's exactly what we find in the Bible. See, here what we find is that it's so hard for individualistic Westerners to understand this, that relationship with God has always been mediated through leaders since the beginning of creation. Relationship with God has always been mediated through others. So you'll remember, at the very beginning of the story of God in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve... Sin against God. It was first Eve that sinned against God, and then Adam followed her. Now what happens after Adam and Eve sinned? Eve sinned first, right? So you would think that like he would call Eve over and say, Eve, I need to I need to talk to you about this. But instead, what we find in Genesis 3 is that though Eve sinned against God first and then led Adam into sin, here's what's probably crazy in your mind as an American. Adam took the rap for the sin first, and all of his children experienced the effects of the curse such that Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Adam, all have sinned. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that's not fair. I didn't do that. Well, I'm sure you did something. But the reason you did something is because Adam did something. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. See, Adam was a kind of mediator for us, a kind of king who was given a kind of divinity or a kind of kingship over creation. He was called to image God and take dominion over the world that God had created. But Romans 3.23 tells us that we are all sinners in him. Now, we know this is also true because we all die, and that's a consequence of Adam's sin that was mediated to us. But that's not the worst of it. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now just think about that. The wrath of God is upon us. We are born in sin. We are in a very bad place. And Christ is the only answer. See, if we don't understand the the severity of the judgment of God, the rightness of it, the fact that we deserve it, the fact that there is no escaping it unless God makes a way, then our hearts are not going to be ready to cry out for and to, to savor and to love and to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. But we are under the wrath of God. And it's not just that, though. Notice this. Adam and Eve were actually cut off from the presence of God in Genesis 3. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible tells the story of a humanity that is constantly trying to get back into the presence of God. And God sends a number of mediators who are seeking to bring people to usher them back into God's presence so they can behold their God and be in right relationship with Him again and experience all the blessings that are to be part of being in right relationship with God. And they can't get there, right? It's almost like as soon as a mediator comes to help intercede for the people, he, he can't even like wait a few minutes before he's already fallen and sinful and broken. And catch this, as soon as a mediator falls, those curses are brought upon the people. And the same way that a mediator who is obedient to God has his blessings poured out upon the people of God, if he is disobedient, the curses are poured out upon the people of God. And the whole Bible, it just tells you, it's riddled the stories of these mediators who fail and it affects the people. Just think about it. I love the story of Noah, right? So Noah, a new creation pops up, and Noah is rescued through this ark. Only him is seen as righteous by God. And he can't even get out of the boat before he is drunk, literally stumbling, right? For the new creation, And then His curses fall upon His children because of what He has done. See, we find that all throughout the Bible that man, these mediators fail and it affects all of those who follow them. But God promised that He would send a better mediator. A Son. A Messiah who would come from the tribe of David, who would be a, a priest as well, who would heal God's people in the nations and bring them back into the presence of God. And he would always obey God and he would always bring God's people blessings forever. Don't you want that kind of leader? Anybody? Okay, yeah. I mean, This is the great king that we are looking forward to and this king would execute perfect righteousness judgment on those who did not submit to his reign as God's greater prophet, priest, and king. Well, catch this. This is the context, the pretext for John 14, 6. So look there in John 14 with me. John chapter 14. And this is where we're going to be spending uh, much of our time today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 14. And here in John 14, what we're going to find is, is that Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and He tells them that He is about to go away and come back. It's a picture of His death, burial, and resurrection, and His return. And and He says that I'm going because I'm going to be preparing a place for you through His death and resurrection, a place for them in the house of God. So in other words, they're not nearly going to draw near to God. They're going to live with God in His house. See, that's close. That's close to God. That's that's family language. That God is going to draw them in the very house of God where they're going to live. They're not just going to visit. They're going to live there with God. And in verse 4, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know the way. Now, here's what's funny. Thomas speaks up. And I love Thomas, right? All the disciples have a kind of personality. And I love Thomas. Uh, Don Carson describes him as a loyal, courageous disciple, liberally endowed with misapprehensions and doubts. Right? He is doubting Thomas. He's the one who wants to actually see the holes, right? Like he needs proof. And Thomas in this story, in, in John 14, likes the destination, God's house, But he doesn't remember getting the directions, right? He's like, You told us we know the way. I don't remember you telling us the way. And he asked Jesus to map quest out his journey, asking, What is the way to the Father, Jesus? And Jesus responds in verse 6. And there is where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way to the Father. Now, Jesus says this, and clearly Jesus claims in this verse to be the exclusive way to God here. But let's unpack this tiny verse in context because I believe the main question on the table is the way to God the Father. And the truth and the life are actually related to the way to get there. In other words, there's a relation between the way, and then the truth and the life. The way seems to be the main thing that they want to know about. What's the way to God? And the truth and the life tell us something about that way. And so as we look at this, here in John 14, 6, uh, what we find is is that he is unpacking what that means and how we understand it. I like what Don Carson says about this verse. He explains it this way and the way these words connect. Jesus is the way to God. Catch this, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. He is the truth of God and the life of God. Now, I would simply add that he is also very God. And I don't think Don Carson would disagree with that. See, Jesus isn't merely blazing a trail to get back to God and saying, Here's the trail. If you follow this example or these steps, you'll get there. No, he's saying, I am the trail. Like, if you want to get to God, it goes right through me. I am the only way. It's exactly the message that He gives them. And here in John fourteen six, Jesus Christ Himself, catch this, preaches Solus Christus. Jesus Himself says, I am the only way. There is no other way. And so this is Jesus preaching. And he makes an exclusive claim to be the only way to be reconciled with God. This is the exact same message that Peter would preach in Acts four twelve, when he says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name. In other words, Jesus is the mediator. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant by which he is able to bring us to God. Now, I want to think about three things that help us understand Jesus as the only way to the Father. These three things are the things I want to think about, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the life. And I hope those become more clear as we work our way through this text. Now first, notice that Jesus is God. Now you might not know this, but if you look at the book of John, he actually uses these I am statements throughout his book. He has seven of them to describe Jesus. So you remember, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and, and you'll remember that this I am statement, really, if you've read the Bible, kind of throws your attention back to the Old Testament, if you've been reading your Bible. And it will remind you of Exodus 3, when there is a man that comes before God, Moses. And Moses meets God, and God says, to him that you're going to go and rescue my people out of slavery in Egypt and Moses says "Well, when I go what name should I give them they have so many gods what name sets you apart and God says tell them I am that I am has sent you now the reason that he says this is because it gives a picture I believe of the character of God but what's interesting is John frame and others have also said that that name Yahweh that describes the covenant God of Israel in the Old Testament, actually comes from this name I am that I am. So that Yahweh is really what I am points to. And so when Jesus continues seven times to say I am, He's actually making a claim about the nature of who He is, that He is qualitatively different than other men. He is very God. He is one with Yahweh. So when he says, I am, the way, the truth, and the life, that I am is I believe making profound statements. Uh, that's why in John 8.58, John 8.58, Jesus uses the same statement, but he doesn't say, I am anything. He just says, I am. Uh, you'll remember that he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he tells the Jews in John 8.58, describing who he is, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, catch this, before Abraham was I am now you might be thinking well why is that a bad statement I mean it's kind of weird that he thinks that he existed before Abraham and yes he's saying that he's saying at least that but catch this you know the Jews think he's saying something more than something that's crazy because they immediately in the next verse take up stones and they want to kill him why Because they understood that statement as blasphemy. That He was claiming to be God and they wanted to kill Him for it. See, Jesus understood Himself, His self-identity to be that He was one with God. He wasn't a mere mortal, a mere human. He was the God-man. And they understood Him to be claiming that He was Yahweh or God. So catch this. Jesus is God. He's God the Son. Now, Son of God... That's a title you'll find in the Bible a lot. And Son of God was a title that was given to earthly kings who imaged their heavenly king. You find that all over the place. In fact, in Genesis 1, when God created Adam, He was created as a king over creation to image God. Sound familiar? And Jesus was the son of an earthly king. Another son of God, King David. But hang with me. Only Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that He is also the eternal Son of God, very God and fully God. He existed before Abraham eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit in perfect unity. In fact, catch this. Colossians 1, which is a book that is so Christocentric. It just exalts in Christ from the beginning to the end. And in that book, we find in Colossians that Paul says all things were created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ, and that in Christ, all things still hold together. Does that sound like your average Joe? Does that sound like just a good human? No, the the Bible, the apostles, they speak of Jesus as someone who is not just quantitatively better in His goodness, but qualitatively better in who He is. He is different and other than us. Brothers and sisters, the incarnation is amazing. It's amazing that the, the, the divine Son of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus was fully human, but let's not forget that he is also fully God, lest we undercut his ability to save you and me to the uttermost. See, if he is not God, he is not able to save us in the way that we need to be saved. In other words, Jesus is not merely the exclusive way to the Father, he is sufficient. He is fully sufficient to draw you near to God in every way. And, and maybe this morning you just needed to know that. You, you want to draw near to God and you don't know the way to get there. And, and here it is. It's not in you, it's in Him. It's in Christ. Draw near to Christ and you draw near to the Father. See, Jesus here is not merely the exclusive way to the Father. He is the, sufficient, the only sufficient way to draw near to Him in every way. You don't need... To help the Son of God out. And drawing you near to God. But catch this. He's not only the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God entered time and space. Jesus is God's truth. Jesus is God's truth. So catch this. Notice that Jesus, He doesn't merely testify to the truth. Like previous mediators. No, No, Jesus, He comes and He says... He is the truth that you must believe. Just imagine if I got up here on Sunday morning and I said, okay, we're going to preach this morning, and I'm going to preach Joshua, like me. And you need to believe everything I say about me, and it's going to affect you. Does that sound strange? Yeah, unless this is God, right? And so the eternal God has taken on flesh, and he's saying, let me tell you about who I am. I'm here to disclose the Father to you. And you will never see the Father as clearly as you see him in me. So the Bible, it is actually God's story. It is God's story. And catch this, it doesn't center on you and me. It centers on God's Son. It is His his story of redeeming a people to Himself from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And here John claims that Jesus is God's truth. Such that, and hang on, such that to not believe in Him is to not receive the Father. If you do not believe on the Son, you do not receive the Father. So Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's plan of salvation. And John's Gospel opens speaking of Jesus saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus is also qualitatively Superior revelation from God in this sense that Jesus Christ is the culmination to which every Scripture points and the climax of God's redemptive plans for us. He's the culmination that everything points to and He's the climax of God's redemptive plans for us. See, there is no better truth than Jesus whom the Father sent to bring Himself full of to bring us to Himself full of grace and truth. I hope that's what you believe. There, there is no better truth than Jesus. And, and if you don't believe that, and if your, your heart doesn't yearn for more of Christ, then let me just encourage you that you, you need to know more of Jesus because you haven't seen Him rightly. When you see Jesus as He is, you are seeing the Father in all of His excellency, and you, if you have been born again, want to draw near to that. See, when John the Baptist sees Jesus in John one twenty nine, John, he can't, he can't hardly contain himself, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've been waiting for this guy. The mediator has arrived. We can draw near to God. Now how would Jesus do this? Catch this. Jesus came as a mediator of a new and better covenant relationship between us and God. God sent His Son who willingly came to save sinners. You and me. And the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and tabernacled amongst us, as John 1 says, in the person of Jesus. Who is a name, Jesus, which actually comes from Joshua, which means Yahweh is Savior. And so Jesus, the Savior, He came and He lived a life of perfect, obedient righteousness, pleasing God in every way. And His delight... His delight was in the law of the Lord every day of his life. Can anybody here say that the delight of the law of the Lord has been like on your heart and mind every day, like even just today, every moment? Nobody. I was just modeling how to raise a hand, not that I do that. But don't we know in our souls we don't do that? And aren't you overwhelmed by the thought of being called to do that and knowing that you can't do that? And yet here we find the one who did do that. Every day of his life was meditating on, delighting in the law of the Lord. And Jesus, He not only lived a perfect life, He died a sacrificial death. And it takes blood to satisfy the wrath of God. And and priests, you'll remember in the Old Testament, offered many sacrifices to bring people near to God, but priests never satisfied God with animal sacrifices. How do we know that? Because it always took another sacrifice, right? It's always next animal up. Like God is not satisfied yet. And yet, what we know is that Jesus was our innocent sacrifice who died in our place on the cross taking your sins all of your sins that you committed this morning and last week and forever before and after he died for those on the cross so that he might put to rest the wrath of god that we deserved and he he drank it he drank the cup of the wrath of god that you and you and you and me deserved and he drank it to the full so that we might draw near to god What a blessing, this this Jesus, this Christ who came to do this for us. And Jesus was our innocent sacrifice, dying for us, drinking the last drop of the wrath of God. And Hebrews 10.10 tells us that Jesus appeared as our greater high priest and offered His own perfect life as the sacrifice that would satisfy God. In Hebrews 10.10 it says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Catch this. Once for all. Once for all. In Romans 8.1, it says this is, the, this is the end of that. This is what this means. That if we are in Christ and He has died for us once for all, and that we are at peace with God, in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are innocent before God based on what Christ has done. Why? Because only Jesus was able to save us. We could not save ourselves in the least, and we still can't. But, But Jesus was forsaken by God that we might be forgiven and draw near to God. Not only that, we find that three days later He was raised from the dead to declare victory over sin, death, and the devil and offering salvation to all who would turn from living for anything else to living for Jesus. And then 40 days after that, He ascended to heaven where He sits at the right hand of the Father. Catch this, where we are told He forever lives to intercede for us on the basis of His self-sacrifice. Right now, as you are listening to the preaching of the Word of God, there is a better word that is being spoken on your behalf. And it is by Jesus Christ Himself to the Father for you. What a glorious hope! Like, whatever it is that you have done, Christ is mediating your relationship with you to the Father. So your relationship with the Father forever goes through God's eternal Son who took on flesh to bring us to God. And that, that my friends, is good news. That is the best news. Now, I know that people often struggle with the, the problem of sin, right? It's kind of the nature of our hearts. Like, how could a, an all-powerful God allow bad things to happen? And I'm not going to jump into that. But you know what the irony is? I don't think that we're quite as struck enough by the question of the problem of forgiveness. How does a good God forgive sinners, right? And yet what we find is Christ is the answer. Christ. Only in Christ can sinners be forgiven and Christ remain good and just in all that He does. But there's a third thing that we see here. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. Don't miss this. All previous mediators died along with those who followed them. Let me slow down. All Previous mediators died along with those who followed them. Ephesians 2 1 tells us that we were all dead in our transgressions and sins when Christ came. All of us dead, along with the spiritual leaders of our lives, dead, spiritually dead before Christ. And in the story of salvation, you know, it really isn't a story about Jesus coming to save people who were spiritually sick. But dead. There's a sense in which Jesus comes to heal our wounds and bind us spiritually, but the message of the New Testament is we were so sick, we were dead sick, right? Like we were dead before God, spiritually unable to respond and to move towards Him. And so I think that some of us, when we think about salvation, we tend to think about it this way, and I think this is a natural way to think about it, that really salvation is kind of like a physician visiting the ER. Right, going into an emergency room and he looks around and he says, Okay, we got some people who are kinda sick, like the flu, you'll have to wait. And then we got some people who have like severed arms and stuff, and they're like, Okay, we gotta deal with this, right? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, well the physician, like, he really needs to exert his energy a little bit more for them than me. Because I'm just a little sick and they're really sick. But I don't think that's at all the image that we get in the Bible. The Bible gives us this image that we were dead in our transgressions before coming to faith in Christ, and that life only comes through Him. So I think the better image would be kind of like Jesus as a physician walking into a morgue, right? And saying, okay, who's the sickest in here? Anybody. I guess everybody's okay. No, everybody's dead, right? And that's the nature of what salvation is. We are dead on the table. We're not looking to be resuscitated. We're looking to have new life pulled, put into dead bodies. It's in Ezekiel 37 vision. We need God to speak life over us so that we are raised from death to life. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. Now, that's exactly the picture that we have in the New Testament of the nature of what it is that Christ comes into when He comes to save us. Only Jesus was alive when He entered the morgue of this life. And as God, Jesus, fully God, also has the character of God. And one of those characteristics of God is His aseity. That's a big word. It comes from assay. It means from oneself, self existence. It means one that only has life, the only one that has life that comes from Him. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He has everything in of Himself. Is sufficient in Himself, and that is exactly the truth about Jesus Christ. Catch this: Jesus did not come because He really wanted you to sing really nice songs about Him. Because if you didn't, He wouldn't know that He was the most glorious being in all of creation. That's not. That's not who Jesus is. Like, Jesus came because Jesus is good in love, not because we are. Jesus came because we were needy, not because He's needy. And so when Jesus came, He is the author of life along with His Father. He is the self-existent God whose life comes eternally from Himself. But Jesus came and died so that you and me might Live. And because He is the eternal Son of God, He has eternal life in Himself with the Father and is able to give eternal life to those who put their faith in, in Him. And not only that, Jesus continues to mediate for you and me eternally. Right now in heaven with the Father, based on that once for all sacrifice made for you and me at the cross. If we are united to Jesus by faith, we have eternal life that is only to be found in Him. And in this way, Jesus is better than any other and every other mediator that preceded Him. All prophets, priests, and kings, Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Here's what Hebrews 7.24-25 to 25 says about Christ. It says, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And since He always lives to make intercession for them, see, Christ, He is the one way to the Father, the exclusive way. And He's able to draw you and me to Him sufficiently. We don't need to look for other means by which to draw near to God. I love what the reformer Jeremiah Burroughs said. He said this, he said, think of God as a fountain, and then Jesus as a kind of cistern or well and then think of pipes that are coming out from that well to all different individual people. Here's what he says about that contraption that he creates. Faith sucks at the mouth of every pipe and draws from God, but it comes from God through Christ. It comes from God the Father through Christ the Son. The Father fills the Son with all good. And so it comes from the Father through the Son by faith unto the soul of every believer. See, from first to last, salvation is all of Christ. From our first spiritual breath through our daily need for intercession to the last day when Christ brings to completion the work that He began in us. And we can know that we are accepted by God when we put our faith in Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to the Father is through the accomplished work of His Son and Him alone. Now, I want to close with um, just some practical applications concerning Jesus Christ as the mediator, as the exclusive and sufficient way to peace with God. I want to think about what that means for us in in a number of ways. And I'll get through as many of these as I can. But here's the first. It's this. There are not multiple ways to God. I think that's obvious. There are not multiple ways to God. Catch this. There aren't even two ways to God right? There's only one way to God. I've had conversations uh, before with folks who who have missed this. Uh, I've had conversations with uh, Hindus who have missed this, folks who who believe in, uh, you know, they practice Hindu uh, religion. Uh, In fact, I had a conversation with a couple of guys at different times where they were talking to me and, uh, you know, really excited because they accepted Jesus. And I was like, well, that's, that's great. I'm glad that you accepted Jesus. Now, let me just ask you a little bit about that. Uh, do you accept Jesus as God? Oh, absolutely. I was like, okay, that's good. We're moving in the right direction. Do you believe that Jesus is the only God, that there is one God, that there is no other? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't believe that. See, I believe there are actually many gods and that Jesus is there too. I'm, letting, I'm giving him a place on the shelf, right? I was like, no, that's, that's not the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches about Jesus I've also had opportunities to talk to friends of mine who really just aren't Christians, but don't think that you should make your beliefs really that important. And so they've said, look, I think it's fine that you believe that, and I even affirm that. And hey, it seems to make you happy and you seem to live better because of it. But it's just not my way. And you know what what I would say is, look, it's not just my way, it's God's way, it's the only way. Why would I say that? Because so says Jesus. I like what David Platt says about this. He says, You know, a lot of us say, I wish there were a thousand ways and there could be a thousand ways, but the reality is, in our hearts, I think you know it, if there were a thousand ways, you and me would want a thousand and one, right? Like we would want that one more way that was our way. And God says, It's not about our way and our hearts being contorted towards ourselves. It's about our hearts bending towards God and His way, the way that He has given us. And praise God that there is a way. But there's a second thing that we see here. Faith must grasp the Christ of the Bible alone. You've got to grasp the biblical Jesus. It's not enough just to say that I have faith in Jesus and assume that that's going to save you. Who is this Jesus that you claim to believe in? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? Is it the Jesus who has told you that you are a sinner, a rebel, who is walking and running headlong into sin and the wrath of God, and that it only was Jesus Christ who is the God man who could come and save you through his sacrifice on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, actually, literally, bodily, and that he will return to save us from our sin, uh, to save us ultimately one day? Is that the Jesus you believe in? If that's not him, then you believed in something other than God's plan. See, Jesus didn't come preaching the truth. He said, I am the truth. And not just any truth, but the truth which evaluates the value of every other truth claim. In fact, everyone that misses God will do so because they have failed to believe in the truth of the Gospel that centers on Jesus. Third, looking to saints to intercede with God for you is not trusting in God alone. If you are praying to saints to get to the Father... That is not believing in Christ alone. That was part of what the Reformers were saying. See, you, you, you pray through Christ alone who forever intercedes for you. The Bible doesn't say that of anyone else. It's Christ alone who that's true of. And He is the only one who is right and proper to be able to intercede for us with God. See, there's none like Christ. It's to bring Him down to say that others can intercede. Only Christ can do that. He is the only one that is capable and able in His nature and who He is. And so Christ, He is the only way to pray to the Father. We don't pray through Mary or through saints. We pray through Jesus. He is alone. He is sovereign and forever living to intercede for us, to save us to the uttermost. Fourth, communion remembers Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Now, Catholics were teaching, Roman Catholics were teaching, and, and they still hold to this, but that that communion was basically, their belief was transubstantiation. So as I said before, it meant the priest would bless it, he would place it on the tongue, it would turn into the literal body and flesh of Jesus. Now, here's why. They teach that justification is a process throughout life and you need to continue to have a fresh sacrifice of Jesus provided through the priest to bring you uh, back to God after you sin. And you continue to come back and need more and more healing through communion. So they literally sacrifice Jesus over and over again. Uh, I've actually been to a, a number of Catholic services where they preach a homily, uh, a little bit shorter than this one, about five or ten minutes, this sermon. Uh, and, then, and then after that, what they'll do is they'll have communion at the end. And I've seen a number of services where it's empty. And then it comes time for communion and like clockwork, a hundred people show up. Ready to take communion. Why? Well, because they're not focused on hearing from God and His Word and being transformed by that through the power of Christ and His Spirit. They're focused on being cleansed and changed through the elements, the sacraments. But we are told that Jesus offers, offered His sacrifice, catch this, once for all. Once for all. And it will forever and has forever satisfied the wrath of God for all those who put their faith in Christ. That is great news. Here's what that means. God always forgives His children's sins when their faith sets hold of Christ once for all sacrifice. He always forgives us in Christ. The other thing that that means is that God never forgives sins for anyone who does not put their faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Fifth, believing you need to add good works to Christ's work is not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Now now this one is one, yes, that that the Roman Catholic Church was practicing, but also that we as evangelicals still practice, right? So the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that you are saved by faith and works. You have to add works to your faith to be saved. You must add that. Salvation is part you and part God. But that's not salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And this underestimates our need of Jesus and Jesus' exclusive claim to be the only way. And don't miss this. It is, it is also not Christ alone to think that once you are saved that you can do any good apart from God. Right? Like every good comes from God. Even in Christ, every good that we do flows through us from Christ by faith. Coming ultimately from the Father. Paul says this in a number of places in Philippians. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And even when we we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, in Philippians 2.12, he says, For it is grounded in this reality that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to act for His good pleasure. Do you see it? God working through His people, and all of this only comes through union by faith alone with Christ alone. Six, believing someone is good enough not to face God's judgment is not holding to Christ alone. Any y'all have like a really good friend or neighbor who who like when you think about you're like I just can't imagine like that they really need Jesus as much as other people, and just maybe maybe God would save them. Without them putting their faith in Jesus, anybody? Nobody? Never had that? Like, yeah, and you're just—I mean, come on, inside. I'm not saying outside. You know, it's not theologically right, but you love them. Like, I have a bunch of people like that. I'm like, I just to love them. And you think maybe they'll just like sort of pass by? And then we we always hear the story about that like really innocent, holy guy who's living in the mountains of Burma, right? And he's never heard about Jesus, and he's kind of innocent. And you're like, well, well, what about him? Does he get saved? Oh, yeah, that, that innocent guy, he for sure gets saved. Here's the problem He doesn't exist, right? Like, all of us are sinners. Like, there isn't an innocent person. Jesus was the innocent son, and he's the only way back to the Father. So, we need to understand that the problem that we have is sin, and the consequence is God's wrath. The solution is Christ. The problem leads to death, but the solution, the solution leads to eternal life. So, don't go on living. Uh, Don't go here leaving this morning. If you have not put your faith in Christ and you think you're a pretty good person, we say, yeah, probably compared to me, but not compared to God. You need Christ. Don't leave here without putting your faith in Him today. Seventh, faith in Christ alone means Christ is King of your life. He is King of your life. He is Lord of your life in every way. If you have truly put your faith in Jesus, then you turn your life over to Christ and follow Him. Eight. It is not the strength of your faith that save you, but the strength of the object of your faith, Jesus Christ and Him alone. That is such good news. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of the object of your faith, Jesus. He is strong enough that the least faith in Him can move the mountain of your sin as far as the east is from the west and transport you across that infinite chasm that separates you from God into His very house where He promises there are many rooms. It is not the the strength of your intellect It is not how well you teach, how good you live, how bad others live in comparison to you, how many hours you've given to serving the church that saves you on the last day. On the last day, when I come before the throne of God, I will have one strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That is what I plead. That is what you plead. That is the only plea. Is that your plea this morning? If that's not what you're playing before Christ on that last day, there's a better plea to be had than what you have. It's Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray.